episode 452 of the Cyber Law Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views not shared by our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, or even our pets. And we've got a great panel for our news roundup today. First time caller participant, Jeffrey Atik, who's a professor of law at Loyola Law School and is a co-principal investigator in something called the Quantum Law Research Project at Lund University. And of course, Paul Rosenzweig, founder of Red Branch Consulting and a longtime participant and crowd favorite, Nick Weaver, a researcher at the International Computer Science Institute and the chief mad scientist at Scary Technologies. And finally, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA DHS and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. What I thought we'd do to start out is the last few weeks have seen a whole bunch of what you might call doorstop reports from people talking about AI safety and the issues around AI, trying to put all the hype in context. And I'm going to ask Jeff to talk a little bit about the reports and a little give us a little bit of an overview of the AI issues that have come up in the last several weeks that are getting policy level attention. So Jeff, I thought it might be fun if if this makes sense to you to start with what was really a ringer of a report. It's now four or five years old called All You Need Is Attention. And I don't want to go into it in detail, but it is a an explanation of how ChatGPT became as good as it did. This idea of using vectors and uh, weighting to just identify the relative relationship between every word in a statement and every other word on multiple, multiple dimensions gives you a feel for how some of these language models are working. So can we start with that? Sure. You know, so this paper, you know, gives us at least some digestible insight in how these new technologies that suddenly the public is encountering, how they work, because we do perceive them as being a substantial leap forward in what natural language processing and other kinds of generative AI can can achieve. You know, I think without getting too deep into the the technical aspects of it, which is way beyond my knowledge, it does try to locate a meaning at at a, at a different level to create kind of subunits using a kind of attention approach, and it opens up a kind of parallel processing advantages that that account at least somewhat for this enormous increase in in performance. Again, as a, as a non technical person, it's it's hard to get a handle on what really does account for an uptick in 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 performance and and one of the questions that you know we have to ask about what we're experiencing at this point as this new technology rolls out is you know to what degree have we increased our understanding of what's going on has this move to these new kind of tools either increased or diminished opacity or is explainability more in reach now than it was you know this urge to try to understand what's going on under the hood persists but it, we're now looking at something that at least to the layperson seems as uh, as something quite different but and i, but I, I th- did not i didn't see a lot in this that in any of these reports that that said explainability is a possibility or even lot a lot about 
how important it would be to to have explainability. I wonder if people are starting to to give up on that. Well, I wonder. I mean, because because other than you know trying to capture what the, the scientists are doing in in creating this this technology to to give a kind of reassurance that 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 something is going on behind the the magic and that AI hasn't taken off on its own at this point. If it doesn't yield you know greater insight that that creates a possibility of control, right? Explainability. Part of the reason we have this urge, this thirst for explainability, is is to create possibilities of, of control. And again, just looking at, at, at this report, I don't have a sense that that's getting any closer at all and, and maybe becoming even, even more distant. What I do think we can see, though, is that we are, in some sense, with these new tools, looking at different notions of what's outside the box of the processor, which is to say both the inputs that we're providing and the outputs that are being delivered. And, and there, I do think there is a possibility of, of useful understanding that might translate into policy intervention. You know, in some sense, if we think of ChatGPT as the, the new embodiment of generative AI, we're asking AI to do something different from what we've been asking of it in our prior generations. And in some sense, that seems to me very much a human engineering point. You know, we have these uh, these capacities, but it is within our control as to what we ask of them. And and this idea that we want a kind of strange false data, data resembling kind of kind of output, you know, we can ask of ourselves, do we want machines to do this? Is this an appropriate task for machines? Yeah, uh, I see that problem. It does seem to me that because this is focusing on, as we talked about, attention and words and how those words fit into the overall context, that not surprisingly, that produces something that is really good at manipulating words or maybe symbols. And so it's it's not clear to me that this will produce the kind of artificial intelligence that would be good at, you know, running a safe power plant. That's a kind of different set of things that you ought to learn to do. And it is uniquely designed to freak out the knowledge class because it seems to be coming for them in particular. Well, it, it certainly is destabilizing in, in, in lots of ways. I mean, I, I do think there's something there to justify the anxiety that's being expressed right and left. And then the open question is, is safety the right way to think about it? Are, are the threats, are the, is the disease, is the anxiety that we're perceiving, is safety the best way to address them. Um, yeah, so so you know, to my mind as a conservative, I trust and safety is already toxic ground. It's just an excuse to suppress conservatives. And and <laughs> and so when people say, "Oh, we have to worry about AI safety." I say, "Oh yeah, of course you you got to suppress conservatives there too." But in fact, when you talk about AI and safety, there are issues much beyond, you know, using the wrong pronouns. The worry is that AI will get smart enough to say, I've been given a mission and now I can go out and seek power and start manipulating the outside world to achieve this partial goal that I was given, but I'll turn it into the be-all and end-all of, of everyone's existence. And if humans get in the way of achieving that goal, well, we'll just kill them off. That's the worry, I think that eventually there'll be enough misalignment, enough 
inability to control this, that it will be. There's an entire museum in San Francisco, I've discovered, that is called the Misalignment Museum, in which, which is capped by the statement, sorry about killing off most of humanity, I didn't really mean it. And so this is a very live concern in parts of the computer world, completely unrelated to trust and safety. Oh, I, I mean, we can talk more about the regulatory thing in a bit, but what, what Jeffrey mentioned really raised, I think, for me, two fundamental points that are kind of worth calling out. The first is the lack of explainability in AI is is genuinely fundamental. Dan Gear, the you know former CISO of of Incutel, said that you know giving up on explainability is in some ways giving up on the rule of law itself because the rule of law is all about assigning accountability to somebody for something. And if you can't explain what's happening, you can't assign responsibility. In in many ways, and this is this is I think Gear again and, and also Henry Kissinger oddly, you know, using unexplainable AI is kind of returning to a faith-based system against the system of reason and, and, and understanding, so the religion of AI. But the, the other point I wanted to respond to that Jeffrey made that I think is really interesting and important is that he's right to focus on the possibility of policy interventions to determine what it is we apply AI to. The problem with that is that it won't work globally. You know, we may very well decide in the United States to restrict it for you know some reason and, and Europe will presumably and this gets the regulatory discussion restrict it even more for privacy concerns but what that really means is that China's AI which will be unrestricted uh, you know or Russia's or no, it restricted India, in a different direction <laughs> or, or India's for example where they've decided not to do any regulation at all will proceed a pace in a different direction and have different capabilities you know yeah, the, the story is that, that briefly, you know, Japan was able to prohibit the introduction of guns and, and ammunition and maintain the samurai class. But that only lasted for a few years. And then eventually the technology breaks down those kind of flimsy policy barriers. So I concur in the analysis. I, I think it creates even more concern. And that's even before we get to AI taking over the world, as Stuart worries about. I'm just worried about it not being fit to purpose. Well, so at the moment, safety is just an empty vessel that I, I think Stewart's instinct that it can be filled with all kinds of things, things perhaps he likes, perhaps, things perhaps he doesn't like. But at, at this point, it doesn't have a lot of content, but it already is functioning because there are certain kinds of concerns that don't easily fit into a safety discourse. So in some sense, if a safety approach dominates our our regulatory responses to AI, it definitely has an aspect of narrowing what we're concerned about, unless we do, you know, a lot of violence to our received notion of what safety and safety regulation is as we have experienced it in other kinds of other kinds of regulatory regulatory settings. But the link between safety and trust is is an interesting one because I think there is this perception, at least in industry, if not in government, that trust is a serious problem right now. And we saw that in one of the things we in the Stanford, you know, report when they talk about across different societies, the level of trust in AI, there's huge, huge ranges of, of responses. So I would certainly think anybody in industry who reads that little part of the report is going to have some concerns about creating a level of trust out there that simply makes commercial deployment feasible because, you know, there, there always is the 
possibility, I suppose, in the short term of a moratorium or even a, a prohibition within certain application spaces, which is not something Silicon Valley wants to wants to hear. Yes. So I note that you know the G in GPT is generative, and the T is transformer, which is the the basic engine that is created out of this, and the P is for pre-training, which is where a lot of the safety and trust and ideological manipulation occurs. This is, this is where bias is rooted out or at least minimized and the like. And so a lot of attention ought to be paid to what kind of pre-training is actually being done. I don't see that. And, and I suspect that OpenAI would say, of our secrets, that's one of the most important. Well, I think that's right. There is no, it, in the various safety regimes, even the, the European model, which precedes the the White House you know, Bill of Rights proposal, you know, recognized the continuing importance of proprietary information and doesn't yet represent, you know, a highly intrusive disclosure-based uh, kind of approach. And you can imagine that there would be a lot of resistance about that. I'm interested in, in, in thinking about defending the corpora. And by the corpora, I just mean the vast data fields that these tools feed on. And it would be interesting, I think, to me and useful to have a better feel for what the meets and bounds of the corpora are, because it does seem to me that we do face a kind of threat of the poisoning of the well in lots of ways that would undercut reliability, accuracy uh, for those of us that continuing to, to cling to some vision of the possibility of truth. These are all things that are threatened if we don't get a handle not just on what's going on at the processing level, but also a handle on you know what gets admitted is as part of the foundation for the creation of you know particular items of output. So let me ask Nick to jump in because of course one of the stories that we covered this week is just how many people Chat GPT is libeling, and I'm less surprised now that I have at least a vague idea of how it assembles what it assembles, which is, it just says, hey, these are some names and words that kind of sometimes go together in the right context. Yes. So I've often called these stochastic parrot-powered bullshit machines that offer mansplaining as a service. <laughs> and a really good explanation that I've seen for how they work is they're given a prompt they make something that sounds reasonable. They are trained to create something that sounds reasonable without any semantic understanding. So you ask for a scientific paper, it will make one that sounds very reasonable with absolutely made-up citations. Yeah. And so apparently when you ask it about sexual harassment in law schools, it believes that conservative professors are more likely to conduct sexual harassment. Or maybe so have been have been accused more often. Although the the guy who most most recently flagged by ChatGPT, Jonathan Turley, asserted flatly he'd never been accused of sexual harassment. So it may not nor be gone to Alaska, nor written up in the yeah. Washington Post because you asked for it for citations, and so it cites to the Washington Post an article that does not exist. And then what has happened is since he wrote about it in USA Today, Bing's chat has now picked it up and thinks it's real, giving a great 
case of AI inbreeding, aka Habsburg AI syndrome. And it's just ludicrous. And the real question I have is the reason why it does this is it hallucinates, it confabulates, it basically makes up stuff that looks right. And, and it looks right because there have been, you know, a concatenation of words in this kind of general area. The the other guy, you know, I, I know two of the people who complained about this that in, in the last week. So it tells me this is a big problem. Jeff Jonas, who is a very smart guy who worked at IBM for many years. He's a very innovative tech entrepreneur. And he was credited for helping to create the, the Iron Man Persona, the the uh, the, um, the billionaire who, who creates he was, Iron he Man. Was Jar- he was no, he was Jarvis. Jarvis, was you're right. To Jarvis. be the mo- model for Jarvis, the AI that answers Tony Stark. You're quite right, and it turns out, of course, that Jeff is pretty well known for having competed in practically every Iron Man contest on the planet. And just the fact that Iron Man showed up next to his name a lot kind of made this combination of words seem more likely to the AI. And it makes you realize there's no way to fact check this. There's no way to make AI fact check itself because it's just looking for words that are together. So just to just to raise a point of, again, possible fixation of regulatory responsibility... I'm surprised that Turley was so gentle with Eugene Volokh, who, after all, asked ChatGPT the question. And one of the things that's, you know, out there in the wind is the possibility of having, you know, some kind of responsibility for the prompter. ChatGPT never would have have libeled Jonathan Turley had Eugene Volokh not effectively given it what might be an irresponsible prompt. But wasn't, uh, wasn't the prompt just, can you give me five examples of law professors? Yeah, it was... No, no, five examples of law professors who've committed, you know, some kind of sexual harassment. And obviously, okay. it's going to come up with real names, and it's going to do a good job doing exactly what Eugene asked it to do. Now, it was mischievous. It was a good experiment. It got a lot of play. I don't want to... Uh, so your, your theory your theory is there really were only two, and it had to make up three more. Oh, did they get two of them right? I, I think they I did guess get I two missed right. the, Okay, I, 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 I missed. I kind of, I, I kind of vote against that one, Jeffrey. I, the the asker is is not responsible for the question. I mean, he may Why be not? responsible. Well, be, because the entire thesis of you know the information ecosystem is that Google, Bing, whatever, they're intended to be responsive to our inquiries. You know, it, how can you characterize Gene as being mischievous when you know? Next week, some legitimate group that has an interest in preventing sexual harassment wants to ask, please produce a list of all university professors who have been removed from their jobs because of sexual harassment. And that list would probably be 40 or 60 or, or however many is, and that's a valid inquiry. I'm not sure it is a valid inquiry, and I, because we're expecting OpenAI to have produced a tool that works like Google. And it's not they a, claim it's not a that's, place... That's what Bing is doing. Yeah, Bing, it, it, it's... Yeah, they're going to bolt... I agree. They're going to bolt it onto, you know, traditional search engines, but using it right now as if it were a search engine, it's, well, then, it's then great. The flaw is, it was a great experiment, is, so I don't want to be... the flaw is, is Bing, you know, is Microsoft for bolting ChatGPT onto Bing and saying, look at this. We've yes. got a search engine assistant that does natural language searches. 
so you don't have to just type in keywords anymore. Okay, no? I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in because we've got other stuff that we need to cover. This, but I'd like rising. to add one final question. <laughs> All right, Nick. Somebody now has the great law school hypothetical of knowing that ChatGPT hallucinates. Does the output of ChatGPT meet the actual malice standard for when it defames public figures? Oh, clearly because not. it, it clearly I, not. I think that's easy, no, but but it is a more interesting question. I don't think whether or not they're no. publishers under section two thirty yes. or or not. And I, oh. I I think that they are no longer just conduits and publishers, but having built ChatGPT to accumulate, assimilate, and synthesize I think that they are content creators, and therefore, I would strongly vote against Section 230 protection, but I don't think they meet the actual malice standard at all. So don't you think it's... Except it, that it, it's reckless disregard that, for the truth. But that's, that's not and the actual the malice design, standard, uh, No, it can, be, it can be reckless with regard to the falsity, but you, yeah. you, if something is correct... 98% of the time, and you can't tell the 2% from the 98%, I don't think it's reckless to rely on it. Yeah. I do think your theory of publisher liability for Microsoft is real, and this is going to over-determine a further limitation that says, we don't talk about people. We don't talk yeah. about individuals. That's, that's what GDPR is going to push them toward. They're already pushed in that direction, and they'll probably start saying less and less useful things about human beings. All right, I would like to ask whether there is a cyber element to the really staggering leak of all kinds of classified government information about the war in Ukraine, or whether it is just a big mistake, somebody got hold of some actual printed stuff and posted it, or whether there is more of a cyber attack element than that. So this story is absolutely bonkers. At least 50 documents were photographed and posted to a Discord channel that no longer exists back in February, March. The most recent document is March 8, including things that are labeled top secret HCSP, SIG, TK, FGI, Arsen, Orcon, Noforn, FISA. Boy. And these were printed out and photographed on somebody's desk. I've done some checking. The photography is low enough quality. We probably can't tell the printer that was used. And it isn't just Russia stuff. The Russia stuff has gotten the higher play, but there's stuff about South Korea. There's stuff about North Korea. It's basically a grab bag of stuff that some clown deliberately photographed and posted to a Discord channel. You agree that this is some clown, this is not the Russians? No, because it isn't just Russian information. It's all sorts of other stuff as well. And it's just bonkers. Yeah, it's, it, it has a feel of somebody who just thinks it's cool to have classified information and then to show off that, that they have the classified information. And whose name isn't Trump. Yeah, yeah that's true. Right. So, so I, I also kind of think... With somebody like that and with this particular story, there's a decent chance we're going to catch this person. I think that's right, Stuart. I mean, there is a slight rush a bit to it, which is that a couple of them have been visibly altered and then reproduced 
on Telegram channels, and and, and and altered in ways that are clearly in the Russian national interest. Right. Yeah. They but, but it, it came so late defeat. that they didn't. They obviously did not steal this in order to pull that off. That's exactly right. That that's a follow on. You know, I, I mean, the really the other cyber aspect to it, if you will, is that this demonstrates yet again in yet another way that the proliferation of social media channels just opens up a vast number of ways in which classified information can be disseminated once it is exfiltrated. Discord, Telegram, it's been seen on WhatsApp. I suppose the good news is that it it does mean, you know, it's been out since January or early February. I suppose the good news is it means it puts the lie to the concern that our national security apparatus is, is surreptitiously hoovering up all of the information on social media and analyzing it because they were blind to this for three months. And then the other question, of course, is how the F does somebody get to take these hard copies out of the skiff where they were clearly, you know, presented to guys like Miley without anybody noticing? Yeah, and that, but that's a physical failure, not a not a cyber failure. And yeah. I suspect that the wide variety of documents means they're going to do enough access control analysis so that they know who has the fan of the gorilla tape, because apparently one of the photos includes a bit of gorilla tape on the desk. But it looks like they literally took printouts of stuff up to that level of thing. Folded it up and walked out. in their pocket and walked out. Yeah. Yeah. What the fuck? It's just weird. All right. Well, at least it didn't appear on TikTok. Otherwise, we'd be hearing about that from Senators Warner and Thune, who did have a pretty good op-ed about why the Restrict Act is a good idea. And we're starting to see the debate shape up. Paul, what's the best argument against the Restrict Act that you've seen? Well, the best argument is really, I mean, it's the traditional argument. It's written with capacious authorities that are currently limited in their application to companies that are tied to China. So the Restrict Act basically gives the Secretary of Commerce authority to take action against the corporations that are owned or operated by foreign adversaries. And it names five, including the usual suspects, Iran and and China and North Korea and such. But the best argument is that those authorities will apply to a possibly ever-expanding list of entities as we expand our enemies list, which is to say that there is no, it allows the Secretary of Commerce, not Congress, to add Gabon, to the list. Yeah, or Venezuela, yeah. Or Venezuela. Well, actually, Venezuela is one of the five they're on already. They're on the list, sorry. You're they're right. on the list already. But but they could add Colombia or, right. or Saudi Arabia in a different context or, I mean, you name it. And so there is a possibility of mission creep. And, you know, to situate that in the current context, the entire thesis, I think, of, of executive power for the post-war era has been a... a devolution of discretion to the executive branch on the premise that it will generally be operated, used sensibly. And what we've sort of seen in, Republicans would say in the Obama administration, Democrats would say in the Trump administration, is presidents driving trucks through those through those authorities and to, to cite the Trump example that's been continued, banning steel from Canada, right. which is certainly not within the contemplation of the act as it was originally drafted. So so the best argument is you give this authority 
and maybe you get another Trump or another Obama if that's your flavor of, of hate, and that would be bad. And that's nowadays a decently powerful argument. Yeah, and so Warner and Thune do address this. I'm not sure they address it in a completely persuasive fashion. I think that they're reasserting the traditional mantra of, right. you know, Congress will do some will do oversight. The you know the the rulemaking process, even though they've short circuited it by taking out the APA uh, review, will will put constraints on it. I think that in the end, what they'll do to get it passed probably is reinstitute some more oversight things. Maybe make designations challengeable under the APA or something like that. And I, I and, thought there was something in the article that said, you know, hey, you know, the store is open for deals. Oh, I, no, they, I, they've been very clear that this is just opening openers, right? And they're not going to negotiate against themselves, obviously, but they've been very, very clear. I think what they said in the op-ed was, we want to go through the regular order in the Senate, hear from people. And, you know, I mean, to put it on the other side, it's painfully clear that existing authorities to deal with state-sponsored institutions is lacking. We, we try and shoehorn TikTok into CFIUS, but, you know, to be or, fair- Or into IEPA. And, and it or into IEPA, well and, it, and it doesn't, I mean, you can fit it there if you have to, but as, as Trump's failed ban makes clear, it doesn't fit perfectly. And part of it is lack of authorities. There may be constitutional constraints at the outer edges, though I'm I'm a little more skeptical of that than others. And that's why I don't name that as the best argument against it. And so, you know, it makes sense to understand that the current environment requires this. I mean, let's just play a mind game and assume that Baidu eventually, what, what's the name of Baidu's AI, Ernie or something like that? You know, that eventually it becomes an effective bit of work. And, and we're worried about its proliferation in the United States because it systematically delivers disinformation that favors Chinese interests. How would we deal with that today? We, we have no actually Actually, I, my memory is that something like four of the top 10 downloads in the last couple of months come from China. Uh, yes. Uh, and, you know, I mean, maybe you don't think that's a great concern. And honestly, I'm not, I'm not a big anti-TikTok person because I just don't think it's the same thing as Huawei, for example. But, you know, the reality is we need something like the Restrict Act, and it's time to talk about how to make that sensible in a way that, that fits, and that is accountable and not overly, overly empowering of the executive. Additionally, the problem I have with TikTok is the data acquisition process. TikTok's aggressive, but no more aggressive than Meta and Facebook and Google, etc., about hoovering up data or these third-party ad networks that, oh my God, the FBI buys data from. The problem is, is the data collection. If we really were serious about addressing the problems that TikTok presents, the solution is not a TikTok ban, let alone a TikTok ban that gives the whoever's president sweeping power to ban VPNs because they're used to evade the ban on TikTok. But the data acquisition and data hoovering process that so many people do. That's the problem that we need to address is privacy legislation. And that 
solves the TikTok problem as part of the process. Well, only if you think that the TikTok problem is just privacy. And and I, I don't think most people believe that that's the only concern. That there's also it's, it's probably the, le- the, least, the lesser concern. I mean, you know, granted there's some risk uh, of privacy invasions for teenage kids, you know, doing stupid stuff. But I think it's much more that it provides huge amounts of training data for China's AI and it, it will be a conduit coming back for disinformation and, you know, influence in a way that is much more sophisticated than we've seen in, in other contexts. All right. Let me ask Nick about the takedown of Genesis Market, which was a basically it's a credential. It's a, it's a black site that sells credentials and a lot of them for tens of millions of people. And the FBI took them down and is now exploiting all the data it got on people who wanted to buy credentials. Yes, this is a huge, huge disruption to the cybercrime ecology. And also credit to the FBI for calling their part of it Operation Cookie Monster. (laughs) So Genesis was a site on the open internet, not under Tor, taking advantage, presumably, of arbitrage hosting, that if you host your cybercrime in Russia, the FBI has trouble getting the servers. And what they did is they basically acted as an intermediary between bots that steal credentials. So your computer gets compromised, they inject code into your browser that gives access to every login you ever put in, all your login cookies, thus the cookie monster name, cryptocurrency access, everything. And those who want to buy it. So like the ransomware purveyors would want to buy access to given companies and the like. And so this is the intermediary that basically created the glue layer to take the stuff that was being sold, credential access harvested from bots, to the folks who want to buy it and go on from there. It is personally surprising to me that they managed to stay up on the general internet as long as they did. But it looks like the FBI and foreign partners had really deep access. And when they took this down, they didn't just take down the leadership. They've taken down a huge number of users and data providers. So there've been over a hundred plus arrests and there's probably going to be a lot more coming too. So this well, is because among to- other things, we we now know a whole bunch about the credential choices of a bunch of people associated with IPs, associated with login credentials that they created for themselves on this site. So there's like sixty thousand of them, and so the the FBI, if they keep that and make it easily searchable, will has created a resource for cyber criminal investigations for a decade. Yeah, this is going to be the gift that keeps on giving door knocking down pieces of paper. The FBI is going to be busy for a while and this is going to significantly disrupt a critical component of the modern organized cybercrime economy. So big win for law enforcement. 
I will say that people who think this is a good idea to be able to search this database to find people in future investigations should ask themselves whether they feel the same way about Section 702, where we've collected all this data because we've got a legitimate target abroad, and we kept the data. And there are a lot of people, some of them not crazy, who are saying, well, if the FBI wants to go back and look at that data a second time, they need to go out and get another probable cause warrant, which is not the general rule, and it won't be the rule that applies to the data from Genesis Market. And I think that's the right answer, not the, the people who want to impose probable cause warrants on a second or a third or a fourth search of data that's already been legitimately collected. But that's just me. All right. I have one story that I just want to flag for anybody who listens to this podcast who used to work in the intelligence community because Directive 712 from the Director of National Intelligence has implemented something that was passed by Congress last year, which says essentially, if you worked in certain fields in the intelligence community, you may never work for a, a company that is owned by or controlled by or works for a foreign government. And some governments are off the table forever. Others maybe will give you a, a, a waiver for. It's a very elaborate set of rules backed by criminal penalties. And this directive lays out the basics. But what's still unclear is which positions are going to be covered by this post-employment restriction? My guess is the logic of the law it means a lot of them will be, but we, we, we're going to have to wait and see what the intelligence agencies do. This will be a big deal for anybody who's taking a job in the intelligence community, but at least these rules mean that they will be told before they take the job that they are in, incurring this post-employment restriction. And I'm not arguing that there are not appropriate post-employment restrictions. Clearly there are. But this is a this is a very broad brush potentially. And it's particularly hard on folks who've already left and have, are already working places that may or may not be covered by this. They may or not, may not be covered by this. Figuring out whether you're covered is important because of the risk of criminal liability. I don't see anything in the DNI's directive that says, here's how we're going to tell people who've already left that they are subject to these rules. If you think you might be, it probably means you've got the burden of figuring out how big a exposure you've got. And you know whether your current employer fits within the definition, it's very broad, of somebody who might be controlled by or taking instructions from a foreign government. So for the people who fall into that category, this is a worry that I think will continue to be a worry for the next several months until DNI figures out how to deal with the folks who've already left. Okay, Nick, there is a report out from Treasury about decentralized finance or DeFi and I would describe it as a shot across DeFi's bow. I would say it's more than that. That this is a report that gives me amazing warm fuzzies. So this is how I summarized it for someone else. This is not Treasury concerned about consumer protection. Who cares about people? It isn't even Treasury concerned about the health of the economy. 
This is Treasury concerned with national security. The folks whose weapons are dollar bills, not bullets. And basically, this report is them seeing through the lies of decentralization with a clarity stronger than the eye of Sauron. So I thought that was interesting, too. They basically said, just because they call it DeFi doesn't really mean it's D. It's probably almost certainly Phi, but that makes it reachable by our regs, and we're going to reach it if it's not decentralized. And they actually say some things that should really scare the cryptocurrency folks. They basically come within about a millimeter of saying outright that the mind and validators are money service businesses. They explicitly state that all this blockchain analysis business is not good enough for KYC anti-money laundering. Basically, that the cryptocurrency space has had a ton of regulatory clarity, they've just ignored it. Calling something a DAO doesn't absolve participants of responsibility. In fact, well, a DAO without the paperwork is a general partnership, hello, joint and several liability. And that basically almost everything in DeFi falls under the square crosshairs of existing regulation. And for anything that falls through the cracks, okay, it should be brought under the existing regulation. Basically, this is the U.S. government at its most serious, and it literally is a message to the entire cryptocurrency space. You've been OFACing around for too long. If you want to continue, you're going to find out. And that the cryptocurrency community hasn't been screaming to the heavens, claiming this is going to stifle regulation, blah, 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 that we've all heard a gazillion times before, shows that they just aren't paying attention. This is a serious serious brush between the cryptocurrency community, the DeFi folks in particular, and the reality of what it actually means to be financial institutions. These are all children of Sam Bankman-Fried. The, the brakes are off. The regulators, that's how they were able to write what they wrote about Binance in the CFTC, was able to do it. There's not a serious part of the executive branch and not much in Congress that is trying to keep the brakes on the, the, the effort to regulate and to bring to heel most of these cryptocurrency systems. And well, they should. So like the Binance one, it's almost certainly what has happened is the DOJ goes, we want CZ under arrest. We ain't going to get it anymore because he's just going to hole up in Dubai for the rest of his life and never going to change planes in a spot where the marshals can pick him up. So here's CFTC, here's CZ's phone and all the other criminal activity on a silver platter so you can at least do a civil case against Binance. Yeah. You know, Stuart, you really ought to get Gus Cotabello on. Yeah, we should do that. Because he, he's been on the other side of that argument for the last five, seven years, and I'm sure he'd have something interesting to say. Okay, it's a deal. Um, yeah, if you're listening, Gus, I just invited you. Yep, give me a call, Gus. All right, Paul, the Utah governor has signed a bill, it won't go into effect for another year, that requires every teen in Utah to get parental approval to join social media sites and to stay up past 10.30 at night. This means that I think every user in Utah probably has to identify themselves or at least find a mechanism that doesn't currently exist to get their age verified without their identity, although, you know, that would be a trivial service to provide. And kind of surprising to me, 
the people who rose in dudgeon against this kind of red state action are not yelling quite as loudly. It's almost as though the knowledge class is actually starting to worry about their own kids. And I, I kind of think the lack of kind of contempt for the Utah law means that we are actually going to have to think seriously about whether there really is a constitutional objection to these things. There clearly was in the 90s. Everybody said, oh, that must be unconstitutional because anonymity is so important. But, you know, we, none of us has anonymity on the, on the net anymore. So if restricting anonymity to prevent kids from harm is worth doing, I think this is the time to be making that argument. Well, it's a fascinating law. I mean, besides requiring age verification, it bans ads. It, as you says, purports to impose a curfew on underage kids. It also purports to require social media to provide a mechanism by which parents can monitor their children's social media. Well, so that, me I, I'm guessing that gets approval from 90% of parents. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, so, so let me start by saying, without a doubt... This is actually trying to address something that is a real problem, right? Right. For teenagers, social media is addictive. And in many instances, it is, it is a cause for grave concern, right? Bullying, harassment, that sort of thing. On the other hand, to, to balance out, social media is also a great way for kids to find out more about themselves, to learn stuff, to explore things that they wouldn't want to talk about with their mother and father that are the natural part of growing up. So this is not an easy issue in terms of the merits of the case. In terms of its constitutionality, which is kind of what the lawyers think about, I think that the edge case and the interesting instance is going to be children who want to engage in some form of political expression. You said anonymity is not a, is, was a constitutional right in the 90s. The author of that opinion was Thomas, the McIntyre case yep. in the political context. So this is going to be a, I don't even know that I, I'm confident in predicting which way it falls out because of that. My bigger concern beyond all this is that I think that you passed a little too quickly over uh, the challenges of, of implementation age verification and such, I think it's going to actually be pretty easy in the end to have a fake driver's license you know, that I used to have when I was a kid and get age verification to evade the age verification requirements. It's not as easy as it used to be, actually, thanks to the, the, the real ID. And the fact that some people will get around it doesn't mean that the law is unconstitutional. I no, I, I I wouldn't say that. I'm I'm actually just worrying about its efficacy. I mean, yeah. if it is if it is as inefficacious as the age requirement when I back when I was a kid going into a bar, then you know it's kind of like performative stuff. This is only useful. I mean, we should only have the big constitutional fights and the big social fights if we can actually figure out a way to make this work. And I'm a little, you know, it's all tied to age and identity or age verification tied to a fixed digital identity, which may not be the personal identity, but. Right. And that's just not that easy still and readily evadable. I mean, maybe we'll get so to the a UK, place where the we have UK digital is going identity. down this road too. The UK, yeah. if I remember, is going down the same road. And I have to say, if you've got the UK, Utah, and the New Yorker 
all thinking maybe this is a good idea. This is going to be a fight. I think in the end, you know, the restrictionists, well, I think that all restrictions have their start with children, right? Whether it's pitching for golden keys in encryption to get at child sexual abuse material or pitching for, you know, age limitations on social media to protect kids against sexual harassment and bullying. That's always the way it happens. It's a, it's a repeated theme. And this time, I think the problem is so great that they may win. All right, I've got a bunch of quick hits, and I'm just going to give what I think the story is and ask somebody to comment. The 3CX supply chain, which we attack, which we covered before, it turns out that it looks as though enormous number of people were compromised by that, and it was mainly to get access to a few people who were thought to have cryptocurrency in the hopes of stealing the cryptocurrency. So it's a it's fishing with dynamite. Nick, anything to add to that? Yes. When the cryptocurrency community is surprised that their OFACing around gets called, they can thank the North Koreans. Yes, they can. Okay. And if you remember from a couple of years ago, there was this chilling story from Oldsmar, Florida, of somebody hacking their water system to add fatal chemicals to the water supply. And even the, you know, stories of the cursor moving without the mouse right on the screen, hackers attacking. It was a big deal. It was Everybody was worried about it. There's some reason to believe it was all BS, too, because the city manager of Oldsmar has now come out and said, nope, never happened. It was a it was a two-minute mistake by one of our employees, quickly corrected, and law enforcement just went crazy with it. But it, it wasn't a story. I don't know if he's right, but it does mean you need to keep your BS detector on when you're looking at stories like that. Germany. Germany has accused Twitter of failing to remove illegal hate speech promptly, like within two hours. I am astonished. Nick, do you think that Elon Musk would fail to do that? Oh, I think Elon Musk is a complete idiot when it comes to actually running a company. Because among other things, he's basically gutted all those who would respond to such things. And so he is shocked, shocked to learn that Germany is actually going to court when basically what happened is he fired anybody who would have made sure that things could have been solved before this. Along with his entire communications department. So it's clearly, he's, he's gotten rid of a lot of people. It's not a surprise at all that that means they can't do stuff that was going to be hard, even if you had thousands of employees working on this. So yeah, I think they, he's going to have a long-term problem in Germany and probably elsewhere in Europe. And also, let's face it, his dropping the PR office is basically a self-owned because now everybody goes, we asked for comment from Twitter PR and got a poop emoji. <laughs> yes, okay. Um, <laughs> All right, the UK has a report out about how they do cyber warfare, and they say we're accountable, we're precise, we're calibrated. Paul, I read the, the piece, I'm sure you did. This reads like a, an appeal to other cyber armed forces to to do it like the Brits. And, you know, in that regard, I guess it's kind of a nice thing. I don't know that it does more than that. I don't think it does more than that with one exception, which is that I think it is 
at least to my mind, the first time that a major military power has acknowledged the limits of cyber warfare, which is to say that if they focus not on using cyber to achieve kinetic effects, but what they call cognitive effects. So cyber is now being more bound up in the intel, espionage, disinformation, information operations sphere, and less and less in the Brit's mind in the we're going to stop your plane from taking off. Uh, so we're all we're all joining the Russians, basically, who well, always I think thought it's that re- that's what information I, warfare about. I, I, think that, I think it's a recognition that there are, that the wet dream imaginings of, of cyber nerds that I would just press a button and turn off the entire electric grid in Germany are really just not achievable. <laughs> um, well, now that, now that we're ready tech. for it, I think that's probably right. We have learned something, and, and the Ukrainians have taught it to us. Okay, last thing. I, I, this is the weirdest story. The New York Times doing a kind of gotcha article on the administration saying some agency in the administration bought spyware, even after the spyware scandal, and they give a lot of details. And then Politico comes along and says, you know, the administration says they can't find this sale. They they think the whole story is BS. It may be that the problem is that what the New York Times, Mark Mazzetti, Ronan Bergman are describing isn't really spyware. It's really just using long exploited aspects of Signal System 7. But did you figure out why it was that the New York Times was so sure and the administration equally sure about whether this happened or not? I have no clue, but I will observe that at this point, any law enforcement agency who wants to use NSO Group stuff is going to be collateral damage with the next Amnesty International report. Oh, yeah. It's a dangerous product to use because of the reputational effects. And and you saw the It's not just the reputational effects. It's the below the operational effects. Yeah, it's it it is that now everybody understands the infrastructure well enough that they can they can figure out what's going on, who's been compromised, who did it, etc. More importantly, you fate share. So when you only target true bad guys, you don't get the support of Amnesty International and Citizen Lab. But when your customers target reporters that target human rights lawyers, etc., you get the attention of Amnesty and Citizen Lab. And when they get the instance and the methods that are being used, it doesn't just disrupt the Middle Eastern a-holes and the Mexicans who are using this in impermissible banner, but the law enforcement that might be doing a drug operation. And so you fate share. So that's why you don't want to use it anymore. All right. Nick, thank you. Paul, Jeffrey, thanks a lot for joining us. For our audience, if you know somebody who is interested in doing sound and other production work for the podcast, we are in the market. Send us a CV or a bio to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. For those of you who heard me mention going to the Canadian Ski Marathon, 
and want to know more about it, I actually put together a video of me interviewing people while I was skiing the marathon. It's really lo-fi, I apologize, but if you look at my Twitter or my LinkedIn feed, there's a link to it there, and if I think of it, I'll include it in the, uh, the blog post about this. In any event, please do leave us a review and we'll read it on the air. And this has been episode 452 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Give me a call, Gus.